0: Welcome to Every Moment His, a podcast dedicated to how God's preached word affects every moment of our daily lives. This sermon was preached by Pastor John Rasmussen at Holy Cross Lutheran Church. Good morning. Would you please pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you that we're here today. We thank you that you've given us breath in our lungs and that we're alive and that you've given us ears to hear your word. Uh, Father, we recognize that apart from your Holy Spirit, all of these words uh, will uh, fall on deaf ears, Uh, but with your spirit, you give us hearts that are open and eager to listen, eager to grow. And so we pray that by your grace alone that you would give us growth and that you'd help us to hear and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. So today is sermon number five, uh, focusing on chapter four. And the title of this chapter is, I am a gospel-centered disciple. I encourage you to read that chapter if you haven't yet. Uh, There's only so much that we can pack into a sermon, and so uh, make sure we read this chapter. I would say of all the chapters in this book, this one's the most important because If you don't have the gospel, you don't have anything. And by the gospel, I mean the good news, the saving good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. Uh, You'll notice in our mission statement the word gospel is at the center, and and really gospel is what holds everything together. And so with that in mind today, we want to contrast what it looks like to be a guilt-centered disciple uh, with what it means to be a grace or gospel-centered disciple. Um I would say that uh this sermon series as far as I can tell has been a real time of encouragement uh for us as a church. I can say that as a pastor that I've felt very encouraged as I've seen us as a congregation uh coming together around uh this mission statement around God's word. I think it's also perhaps been a a time of awakening in our congregation, as the Spirit awakens us to the reality of what it means to be a disciple and the invitation to follow. And yet with that, as so often is the case with awakening, uh, there may be a sense of guilt that's been conjured up, that maybe the Spirit has revealed things that are are off-center, that are sinful. And that has created maybe a sense of guilt in our hearts. Uh, The law of God always does this, right? Because the law always accuses us. It always shows us where we are deficient and where we've fallen. And so knowing that the call to grow may lead to that feeling of guilt, um, we need to be careful that our discipleship is not motivated by guilt. We'll see today that there is a proper role for guilt in the life of a Christian. But that is not the center of our discipleship. The center of our growth is what God has done for you through Christ uh, when we didn't even love him at all, right? This is the gospel. We want to be careful that our discipleship is not based in guilt or fear or legalism or obligation, I have to, things like that. because in the end, this doesn't bear fruit. It can bear, you know, sort of a false fruit because um, guilt or obligation or fear can get things done, right, but it doesn't produce lasting life-giving growth. In fact, I believe it produces the opposite. So uh, as we think about this, I have sort of a, I think a real life example that we could use. Um, so everybody, if you got your booklet, let's open up to page sixty-two. Um, if you've flipped through uh, the book, if you read the whole thing, you know that on page sixty-two we have a, a membership covenant uh, for Holy Cross. And this is very common in, in churches that that are taking discipleship seriously, that they have a covenant where all the members sign this and they say, we agree, this is what it means to be a member, we want to be held accountable uh, for these things. Um, we're going to be using this this document uh, when we gather at Eunice. And so just so we're kind of all ready, we're all prepared for this, uh, what we'll do at Eunice is... is we will have an invitation for you to sign your copy so that you have a copy of the covenant. And then we'll have an invitation for you to sign a copy given to you, placed on the table there at Eunice, uh, that when we come up to communion, we will lay this before the Lord as as a symbol of our devotion, of our accepting of, of this call to discipleship. And so why are we doing this? What's the purpose? Why have a covenant? Why? Why have a thing that we sign that says we're we're signing up for this? Well, a couple of reasons. Uh, Number one, this is just basic church membership. Uh, We wanna have clarity about what we signed up for when we said we were members of this church. If you look in the hymnal in the section about new members and confirmation, basically this covenant is a reflection of what we all agreed to when we became members or we were confirmed, right? Uh, and so, uh, with that in mind, we as a congregation, we want to have clarity. We're all on the same page, right? This is what it means to be a disciple. We want to we break up with, with cultural Christianity and consumer Christianity and walk the path of discipleship together. So it's clarity, right? The next reason that we want to do this is for the sake of unity, because it's a beautiful thing when we as a congregation can say that we are together gathered around this understanding of what it means to be a member. There's great power in that unity for us to express that together. And then finally, a third reason is that there's a great encouragement in this for us to express that we have heard the message loud and clear, And we've embraced this call to be disciples. But we wouldn't want to sign this covenant out of guilt, right? Or obligation, or I have to. Rather, it's a success if we were to hold this covenant in our hands and sign it simply because of grace. Because I've recognized that I'm loved by Christ, and this is an opportunity for me to join with others in following him. So hold on to that for a second. We'll get to the meat of the sermon, and then we'll come back to the covenant as we end. So point number one, guilt does not grow disciples. There's this really interesting passage in 1 John 4, 18, where where John says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. In other words, it's like John is saying, that when we uh, we follow God and we try to grow as disciples being motivated by fear or by guilt, we're, we're missing something. We're missing the true motivation, which is that God has loved us eternally. And so it's that stable and secure relationship of love that God has for us that causes us to grow and to live in love towards him and towards others. And so at the heart of discipleship is not fear or guilt or obligation, but at the heart of your discipleship is love and not primarily your love for God, but first and foremost, God's love for you. Now, you may have a question if my discipleship is rooted in the love of God, then why does the scripture tell me to fear God? And why is it that I feel guilty sometimes? Well, what we need to remember is this, is that there is in your life as a Christian a, a role for a healthy fear of God, a healthy fear of his commandments, and a feeling of guilt when you break those commandments. This isn't what's going to motivate and bring about our growth, but it's going to help us feel and know the boundaries, right? Um, so, for example, there is a role for guilt and fear in your life as a Christian because there's a part of you that doesn't love God and doesn't love others, right? You feel that. As Christians, we are completely saints, completely righteous, made righteous through Christ, and yet the reality of this life until the last heartbeat you have in this life, you will be a sinner. You know that, right? You feel that on a daily basis. There's a battle between the old and the new. And because there is a part of you, Scripture calls this the old Adam or the old person, because there's a, a part of you that doesn't love God and doesn't live, love others and wants to do it your way, because there's a part of you that would really be on the highway to hell if left unchecked, there's a part of you that God's law has to say no to, right? Right? And so when God says no to us through his law, he's showing us the boundary. He's saying, if you do this, this will happen. This is why we have stop signs, right? If you run the stop sign, you're likely to collide with somebody else and hurt yourself and hurt others. And that's the function that God's law has in our lives. It's, it's a very stern no that says, don't do this, because if you do this, you're going to hurt yourself and you're going to hurt other people. And so we as Christians in this life, we still have to hear that voice because we carry around a sinful, obstinate nature that doesn't want to listen to God's voice. And with that said, there is a proper place for guilt in your life because guilt is sort of like pain. It's like if you put your hand on uh, the burner, the stove, you're going to quickly pull it back because you realize I'm hurting myself. And so the proper role of guilt in your life is to show you that you're crossing a boundary, that you're breaking one of God's commandments, that you're living not as a disciple. And the purpose of that guilt is to then push you towards Christ. You see, the purpose of guilt is not to remain in guilt. When we remain in guilt, and guilt is what's driving our discipleship, it becomes dark and ugly and toxic. The purpose of guilt is to drive you into the arms of Jesus, and it's in the arms of Jesus that your guilt ends, and your shame is covered, and you're forgiven. So we can see guilt really as a diagnosis. The law of God is continually showing us the boundaries and diagnosing us as sinners so that we would, in desperation, come and find safety and healing and love and forgiveness in the arms of Christ. So do you see that? So it's completely normal for you to come to church and feel guilty when you hear a sermon, right? Because that's the Holy Spirit convicting you and showing you your need for Christ. But what must predominate in the sermon is Christ crucified and risen from the dead for you because that's the place where you're loved and growth takes place. So do we see that we understand that? Um, So your old sinful nature uh, needs to hear that voice of of don't do, right? Because that old sinful nature is obstinate. It doesn't want to listen to God or obey God. And it needs to be reined in by God's law and shown uh, its sin. And yet, that is to drive us to Christ. Now, what are um, some symptoms of guilt-centered discipleship? This is a big temptation, by the way, because some churches that say, hey, we're gonna be disciples, we're gonna be like Navy Seals for Jesus, we're gonna really do this discipleship thing, those churches can sometimes just get into guilt as the motivation, do this or else, obligation, fear. But when we make that the focus of our discipleship, when fear and guilt is what's driving the bus, this is what happens. It actually leads to more sin and more guilt. Some symptoms of guilt-centered discipleship would be fear, sort of fight or flight. And I think that some congregations that are maybe fighting with one another or or at odds with one another, it's sometimes because they're living in a gospel-depleted environment, a love and grace-depleted environment. So everybody's just kind of fight or flight, right? Uh, I think that hiding and defensiveness are symptoms of guilt-centered discipleship because if, if you're trying to be better and, and, and you're trying to, uh, to be perfect and you're trying really hard just to, to labor, to get God to love you and to keep God's love, then you have to hide. You have to hide from God and you have to hide from others. What's the first thing Adam and Eve did when they sinned? They covered themselves and they hid. So, so a guilt-centered approach to discipleship is always going to hide. It's always going to be defensive because to admit that you're wrong or that you're weak or that you're struggling means that your righteousness is crumbled. And so we end up uh, being hypocrites. Uh, hypocrisy literally means that you wear a mask, that you pretend. And so when we're basing our discipleship on our goodness, we have to, to pretend to not be sinners, Because if we ever had to admit that we really are sinners, it'd be the end of us. There'd be no help when we live in a low grace environment. Also, a judgmental attitude. Of course, if we're judging ourselves and having guilt, we're going to also have a guilt-centered approach to others. We'll judge others. It's often been said that, you know, when, when... When we encounter God's law as sinners, there's there's one of two responses. We are either gonna balloon up with pride because we think we're doing it and other people aren't. We're keeping God's commandments and other people aren't. Or we're gonna be crushed with despair because we think, how could God ever love me? Now, the beautiful thing is when you fix your eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ, you can neither be prideful or have despair. There's no pride as we look at the cross of Christ because we put him there By our sins, and yet you can never look at the cross of Christ in despair, because it was his great love that loved you to that point, even when you didn't love him at all. So do you see that? This is why we got to keep the gospel at the center. I think that often at the heart of cultural Christianity is a guilt-centered approach to discipleship. This is why in cultural Christianity, it's all about the bare minimum. Just tell me the minimum, and maybe we have to use guilt to get people to listen. We have this attitude of apathy of, do I have to? Because we're being motivated by something other than the love of Christ. So these, can you see, these are things we don't want in our community, right? And this is why we want to be gospel-centered. So point number two, the gospel grows disciples. So what in the world does the word gospel mean? It's kind of a church word, churchy word that we use, gospel Now, in a wide sense, the gospel means everything that Jesus said and did. And that's why we have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in a wide sense, we we hear from Jesus the law and the gospel. So, for example, our reading from today, Matthew chapter 5, was a very law-heavy reading, right? You know, cutting off hands and tearing out eyes. Jesus is talking about the severity of sin. That's contained within... Uh, one of the four Gospels, as we talk about gospel in the wide sense, we're talking about the gospel in the narrow, focused sense of good news. That's what the word means. It just literally means good news. It means an announcement of good news, an announcement of something you didn't do that somebody else did that you enjoy the benefits of. It'd be like, you know, if if you were in war and, and um, you were just cowering in fear back in your own city, and then somebody came back and announced the good news that we won and we're safe. You didn't do anything to earn that. You just live in the, the, the blessing of what other people have done for you by their strength and courage. And so when we're talking about the gospel, we're not talking about what you do. Anytime we're talking about what you should do or shouldn't do, we're not talking about the gospel because the gospel is not what you have done. It's what Christ has done for you and continues to do for you without any merit or worthiness in you. So I would would just define the gospel as this. Not what you have done for God, but what God has done for you in spite of what you've done. Do you see that? This, friends, is the center of what we're all about here as a community at Holy Cross. This is what we're gonna hold high and proclaim every Sunday. This is what we're gonna rejoice in as we gather around the Lord's Supper. This is what we want to be all about as disciples at Holy Cross, because this and this alone, this gospel of God's unearned love is what's gonna move us forward and make us grow. And, and we see this in relationships, right? Do relationships blossom and grow when guilt is at the center? obligations at the center. No, you're just scared and you're saying, how do I just make this person happy or do the bare minimum to stay out of trouble? But in really healthy growing relationships, we see that love is at the center. So th- this is the way it works with, with all of us as we grow up in a family. That You know, what causes us to grow up and mature as human beings, what's critical for our growth and development as humans is that we would be in a family where we have a stable and a secure and a loving authority that cares for us really unconditionally, right? As a baby, you didn't do anything to earn your parents' love, Right? It was given to you by grace, and it was the safety and the security of them holding you and feeding you and caring about you and comforting you that caused you to grow and mature. It's the same way with with our discipleship. God has attached Himself to us in love through His Son, Jesus Christ to the point of putting on flesh and and suffering and dying and rising from the dead. And in baptism, God has attached himself to you in love. And through his word, he attaches himself to you in love. And so that attachment that God has to you by grace alone causes you to also begin to trust and to live in love as you've been loved first. Do you see it? That's what motivates our growth. Now, a caution. We don't want to do what Christians sometimes do when they learn this truth, and we don't want to begin to do this introspection where we ask ourselves, well, am I doing this out of the love of God, or am I doing this out of fear or guilt? If you can think of the proverbial person who needs help across the street... That's probably not a good time to ask yourself, am I doing this out of love for God and love for this person, or am I doing this out of guilt or fear or obligation, or just so that I look good? When it comes to loving and helping your neighbor, none of those questions really matter, right? What matters is that you love your neighbor. And who really cares about your, your, um, your motivation? Your neighbor needs your good works. Um, and so there are going to be times as a Christian when you're going to wake up and you're going to say, I don't feel like going to church today. And what you don't want to do is get into this cycle of being like, well, I'm going to wait to go to church until I really love God. I'm doing it for the love of God. Sometimes as disciples, we just get up and we do things because we know they're the right thing to do, and maybe the right motivation will follow. Right? Um, but we're always praying and we're asking God that he would cause his love to be that which causes us to follow. Now, I just want to share with you some scriptures, which I think kind of lay out this pattern. I'm not just making this up right. We see this pattern of God's love being at the center of our discipleship all through the Old Testament and through the New Testament, all the way from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. We could go through countless examples. I chose to just focus in the book of 1 John. Look what it says here, let's read this together. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So first and foremost, you as a disciple need to know that God's love is this. This is the way you know what love is. It's that Christ laid his life down for you. And he laid his life down for us. He was busy sacrificing himself and laying his life down for us when we were busy sinning. When the disciples are busy denying him and fleeing from him, right? It's this love that, that comes to us unearned, unasked for, that teaches us what love actually is. And do you see how John is saying that we actually learn how to love the brothers, to love the family of faith, not through guilt or obligation, but we learn to do it because we have been loved first. We as loved people learn how to love others. We're in First John four ten through 11. Let's read this together. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So John's saying, it's really not all that important how much you love God. It is important. But what's most important is that God loved you. And he gave his son for you. And it's through that love that we are also able then to love others. See, God's love flows to us first unearned and then it flows out to others. Or I just love the simplicity of this in First John four 19. let's read it. We love because he first loved us. God loves first and God loves last, right? His love is the beginning and the end and we learn how to live and to obey and to follow and to sacrifice and even to suffer for others because of that unearned love. Sometimes just hearing scriptures is a little conceptual, That's hard to imagine, but I think it's good to just have a concrete story for us where we see this love given freely that inspires uh, love for others. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried to get somebody to do something they don't want to do? Anybody? How did that work out? Probably not very well. Um, in fact, you might have to resort to things like rewards and punishments or guilt or do this or else or do this and I'll give you a happy meal or something like that. You know what I mean? The parents and the educators in this room are like, yep, or maybe if you have people you know, working for you, um, we've, we've all had that experience of trying to get people to do something they don't want to do. Have you ever tried to get yourself to do something that you don't want to do? Yeah, every time that I tell myself, I need to exercise, it's this conversation. I don't want to do this. That's my only reason, right? Um, it's hard to get us to do certain things, to be motivated. Now now on the night that Jesus was betrayed, all the disciples came together in this upper room to share the Lord's Supper, the Passover meal together. There was one thing that you couldn't have convinced anybody to do. You know what it is? It's wash feet. That was the role for the lowest of the low. And I don't even think that Peter or James or John, it even crossed their mind that they would be the one to wash the feet. This was a custom right before the dinner that somebody would wash the feet of all the others and dry them. Hospitality in the ancient world. And nobody in that group of disciples, I don't even think it crossed their mind. Not it, right? But guess who does? Jesus. And did anybody have to twist Jesus' arm to wash those feet? Didn't he do it willingly? And did anybody have to twist Jesus' arm to be arrested, betrayed, crucified, die? Did you have to twist his arm? No, he did it willingly And notice how Jesus is gonna take this example of what he willingly did that nobody else wanted to do. He takes that as an example. And he says, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And so we can see here that through the love of Christ, the Holy Spirit makes willing people out of unwilling people. He actually makes us to do what we would never do on our own simply because we've been loved. Not motivated by guilt, not driven by obligation or fear, but joyfully out of gratitude. This is what discipleship looks like. And so what does it look like when we as disciples are formed under the gospel, when we have a gospel grace of God-centered discipleship? It looks like this. It looks like willingness. Here's the amazing thing, that that the grace of God actually makes us do more than we would under guilt. Because under the guilt that is so often common in cultural Christianity, we're always saying, what's the bare minimum? But when the grace of God seizes our hearts and we recognize what Christ has done for us, we begin to say, not what must I do, but what can I do? It's no longer I have to, but I get to. Gospel-centered discipleship means an attitude of joy, that we are joyful to be around each other, that we recognize that as God has loved us, the person sitting next to me or behind me or to the side of me has been loved. There's a, an attitude of gratitude, right? I think most importantly, there's, there's a, an attitude of humility, because when, when grace and the gospel are at the center of your discipleship, you can't boast, right? There's no boasting. There. If you grow, God gets all the credit. And so as a gospel-centered disciple, you actually, you can't use your growth to judge others. But you look up to God and say, if I've grown, it's because you did it, God. It also means vulnerability. It means that we're able to admit our mistakes, to admit that we're wrong. Because when we admit that we've sinned, when we admit that we're wrong, it's not the end of us. But underneath us is that steady love of God that doesn't change. We can be vulnerable. To be a gospel-centered disciple means we're teachable because we can admit we don't have all the answers and that maybe we, we need help, right? So this is our prayer. This is what we ask of God, that he would make us truly into a community that is shaped and that is formed under his grace, and his grace alone. And so it's with that that I, I want us to approach the covenant with these two attitudes, comparing them, right? Because if we all got together at Eunice and, and maybe we just drag our feet and we sign a covenant out of obligation, that's not real discipleship, right? That's not That's not a good motivation if we say, just tell me the bare minimum, right? Rather, as we approach signing this covenant and and recognizing with joy what it means to be a disciple, uh, we want to do this out of grace, that the love of Christ has invited me into this path of following Jesus with others. And so I encourage you to take a look at this covenant this week on page 62. Really prayerfully think through it. Discuss it with your family. Maybe discuss it with somebody else. If you've got hesitations, questions, reservations, talk to me, talk to Pastor Tim, talk to one of our our staff members. Some of you may look at this covenant and say, Pastor John, I've signed this covenant 10 years ago, right? And this is an opportunity for me to recommit to what I've been living and want to continue to live. Some of you might look at this covenant and say, you know, maybe, maybe a month ago I wasn't there, but I've been learning, I've been growing, and I think I'm ready to say, yes, this is what I want. I want to be a disciple, a member of this church who understands what kind of journey we're on. And maybe you look at a covenant like this and you're like, nope. Or I'm not so sure. If that's you, I, I encourage you to really lean into that this week in prayer and to ask yourself why. Why might you be hesitant? And once again, I'm all ears if, if you want to talk through and process that. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize in humility before you that we have no other resource to grow except for your love and your grace. And Lord, we're humbled to know that this grace was given to us before the beginning of time, not by any work we'd done. Lord, you see us in our worst moments, and your love is completely stable and consistent. And as a community, Lord, may that love continue to walk with us, motivate us, and grow us. In Jesus' name, amen.